Welcome to Skim This. We all know 2020 has been a year. And while we may remember it as the year we started matching our face masks to our sweatpants, or we started spending all of our time on the couch, it turns out 2020 can be remembered for a lot more than that. On this show, we'll take you through the biggest developments of the year in medicine, in foreign policy, and in entertainment. And we'll make some predictions about whether some of your favorite quarantine trends are here to stay. Here's looking at you 2021. All right, let's do it. 2020 was a crazy year in the medical world. This year forced many of us to think about our health and appreciate the tireless work of the medical community in new ways. To understand what this year meant in the world of medicine, we called up Dr. Jennifer Ashton, ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent. I think that as we look back on 2020 from a medical and scientific standpoint, there are a lot of reasons for pride and celebration. And then there are a lot of things that I think were identified as weaknesses that represent major opportunities for improvement. One of the reasons to celebrate? This year brought major medical breakthroughs, especially in the form of vaccine technology. Reminder, Moderna and Pfizer have both created their COVID-19 vaccine using what's called mRNA technology. It's a technology that scientists and researchers have been studying for years. But these COVID vaccines mark the first time that this technology has been authorized. And not only have Pfizer and Moderna gotten regulatory approval to roll out these vaccines in multiple countries, they've done so in a way that everyone agrees is safe. Not only are the vaccines a turning point in the fight against the pandemic, they also represent a change in medical technology overall. So this area of mRNA technology is an area of intense R&D in the biotech world, not only for its utility for immunizations and vaccinations, but also its utility for therapeutics, specifically for rare or chronic illnesses in the world of oncology. Given just how effective these COVID vaccines are, people in the medical community are now eyeing mRNA as they tackle other issues like cancer and heart disease. The appeal to this technology is that it can be rapidly scaled on a massive level in a much shorter time period and hopefully for less cost. And mRNA vaccines are already being tested for multiple diseases, including influenza, rabies, and Zika. Another reason to celebrate? Dr. Ashton told us we saw what's possible when governments and companies work together. I think one of the great positives of 2020, and gosh, sometimes it's hard to recognize any, <laughs> but one of them is that, you know, this year showed us what's possible when there's global collaboration between the public and private sector. I think in terms of global collaboration, a process that normally takes four years at the fastest and decades on average, which is a vaccine development, getting done in less than 12 months when there's billions and billions of dollars poured into it and tens of thousands of people working on it and under the literal spotlight of the world really is jaw-dropping. When you think of the implications of that, what else can be done in the world of cancer, in the world of other medical and scientific issues that have kind of been left into the corner? 
Dr. Ashton said, this pandemic has also shown us what the U.S. in particular needs to improve on to tackle future public health challenges, which includes acknowledging that the U.S. isn't isolated from global health crises around the world. I think this pandemic showed us that we can't anymore take a United States-centric view of public health. We can't look at something that's happening in Asia or Africa and say, well, that's their problem. It's never coming here because we saw how quickly it, it can and will come here. I think one of the most important things that I'll be looking for in 2021 and in the years that follow is how the emotional stress and stressor of this pandemic has hit our healthcare system. The fact that we will, in medicine and healthcare, be suffering from PTSD because of what we've experienced this year is not an over-exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. All you have to do is speak to anyone who works in a hospital who has been affected by this pandemic who will tell you that working 260 days in a row without a break or holding up iPads as people die and say their last goodbyes to relatives who die alone it takes its toll on the psyche and spirit of people in healthcare. So I will be looking at that. I'll also be looking at, you know, on a very nuts and bolts level, our hospital surge capacity, whether that improves in this country, both in rural areas and in major cities, because there will be a next time. She's hoping that even though COVID-19 has exposed some limits of the healthcare system, we'll be able to address them for the future. The name of the game in medicine is hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And we were really never prepared for the worst case scenario in this country. And I think that moving forward, we need to be. For a year when most of us have pretty much stayed in the same room, 2020 has had a lot of pop culture moments. We had home screenings of Hamilton, two Taylor Swift albums, learning dance moves from TikTok, and doom scrolling. We wanted to figure out which trends we saw this year are here to stay, but we're a news podcast. So we asked people who know better, a few of our colleagues on the Skim Picks and social teams, Sam, Hadley, Maria, and Lindsay. If anyone can tell us what's hot and what's so over, it's probably them. First up, this year's biggest trend, Zoom. The consensus? Definitely not going away. I guess you're on mute is staying in our vocabulary, but our team is hopeful that how we meet virtually might change. Right now, like I'm looking at myself right now, but you think I'm looking at all of you, but I'm looking at myself. And that's why I like having my camera off because it lets me focus on everyone else. This feels like a lot of pressure to always have yourself on and ready, like physically. Normalize turning your camera off. Agree, normalize off-camera meetings. Getting ourselves presentable for a camera all year has definitely added to our Zoom fatigue. So we wanted to know, what about how we dress? The monochromatic sweat outfit is here to stay because everyone spends so much money on loungewear. Cool. I guess we can settle into comfy clothing for a while, right? To be honest, I mean, one, I'm not a sweat pant person, like at work, like even at work from home, like I wear real pants. Like oh, I, I'm not, I'm not down with that. I don't want to ever wear jeans or buttons ever again. I Thanks. hope that we can wear sweatpants, leggings to the office. Like what is unprofessional about them? I've worked harder during quarantine in sweatpants than I did at the office in jeans. Sweatpants had a glow up and they are now joggers. Like joggers are now the fancy sweatpant. They're more expensive than sweatpants and they like sometimes have velvet or they sometimes they have like accents on the side. 
With this much debate, we had to bring in one of the skim's co-founders, Carly Zakin. PJs or sweatpants as regular attire? Ooh, tough call. Uh, pajamas. BRB, gotta follow the boss's orders. Goodbye, 2020. It's been real. Need a reset? Us too. Our How to Skim Your Life New Year's Challenge starts January 3rd. It's 21 days of skimming your way to a smarter life, from work to your wallet, health, pantry, and more. Text CHALLENGE to 888-111 to sign up to get a text from us every day throughout the month with details about how to tackle that day's challenge. That's CHALLENGE to 888-111. 2021, here we come. When's the last time a single story consumed the world's attention for basically an entire year? We went back through our archives to find the day when we first started talking about COVID-19. The answer? Skim this on January 22nd. It all starts with a runny nose. A cough, sore throat, headache, fever. Anyway, the rest of that week back in January, we talked about President Trump's impeachment trial. And the New York Times endorsing Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar in the Democratic primaries. Wait, what? The point is, COVID-19 drowned out almost everything else this year. And even though this was a global pandemic, most of us were focused on how our local communities, our hometown, states, or country fared. But since history stops for nobody or no virus, we wanted to reflect on what other global events are worth remembering from 2020 as we figure out what the world will look like next year and beyond. I'm Samantha Power, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and author of The Education of an Idealist, a memoir. 2020, Power says, was a historic year for global protest movements, which is impressive considering that some countries use the pandemic as an excuse to crack down on human rights and to try to limit people's freedom of speech. But still, people spoke up and most of the time did so in as safe a way as possible. And this has manifested in an unprecedented number of political protests around the world. And what I think is most noteworthy about the protests is the extent to which, in many places, women are at the forefront. Let's get a little more specific. So Sudan, Poland, Belarus, just a few of uh, dozens of examples of that nature. In Sudan, women led a protest to bring down a military dictatorship in 2019. And in 2020, they did more than help decide who should run the country. Already that has paid dividends. You see female genital mutilation criminalized now for the first time in Sudan. You see the abolition of a requirement that women had to get their male partner's consent in order to travel with their children. If you can believe it, that's been done away with. So already you actually see the fact that women were involved on the takeoff, as it were, have bearing on how the landing is carried out and what those laws look like. Power says two countries in Eastern Europe also witness women taking the lead in protests. Poland is currently seeing the largest wave of mass protests since the fall of communism, as women speak out against a new law that would almost totally ban access to abortion. Women took to the streets and now the government has backed off of implementation of this law. In neighboring Belarus, women-led protests confronted a dictatorship that's still in power, but is weakening by the day. Belarus, Europe's 
kind of most repressive dictatorship, you might say, led for many years by Alexander Lukashenko. It has been women now for a hundred days that have been protesting the Lukashenko regime. Women who are the people who came out in the election to effectively vote Lukashenko out of office, even though he wasn't prepared to recognize the results. And women who have traveled to European capitals to convince European leaders to put in place travel bans and to freeze the assets of government officials who are orchestrating a very bloody crackdown. But the women just won't stay home. They keep coming out. Looking beyond 2020, Power says the women-led protests we saw this year could help reverse a worrying trend that the nonprofit group Freedom House has been observing for 14 consecutive years, a decline in freedom. Especially, as Power says, quote, illiberal, populist, or nationalistic leaders rise to power. One of the things that illiberal, nationalist, populist leaders have in common is they tend to consolidate their power by attacking minorities or attacking the other. So that can take the form of anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim sentiment, anti-LGBTQ sentiment, as we've seen in many parts of the world. It also takes the form of celebrating the traditional, and that means the idea that women's place is in the home and not in the workplace and not to be treated equal to men. So what's noteworthy about what we've seen in 2020, not just in Sudan, Poland, and Belarus, but in many, many countries, is women reacting to this reaction to their ascent and to their growing political and economic power in many societies. And so I think what you can expect in the future is in many parts of the world where governments are preaching what they might call social conservatism, but often means a return to the way things used to be a decade ago or more than a decade ago, women are fighting that and are not prepared to give up what they've earned and indeed are not prepared to give up before they've achieved true equality. The fact that women have secured concessions from governments in 2020 mean that women know that they can secure political concessions in 2021 and beyond. This podcast is free and we intend to keep it that way. But to make sure we keep the lights and the mic on, we want to make sure we're producing the best possible content for you. And no, this isn't an ad. Instead, to help us keep providing you with the best and most relevant content, we'd love if you gave us some feedback about the show and told us a little bit about yourself. If you can spare five minutes to answer a few multiple choice questions, we'd really appreciate it. To do that, head to theskim.com slash pod survey. That's theskim with two M's dot com forward slash pod survey. A few minutes of your time will help us give you hours and hours of the content you want in 2021 and beyond. Thanks. All right, back to the year's trends. Now that we've established that elastic waistbands are safe for another year, we asked our skim colleagues whether a few other things that went mainstream in 2020 deserve more time in the spotlight in 2021. Like the weird whipped coffee fad from the spring. I think people were bored and needed something to do. 
No, I tried it and it was overrated. I had it one time, but it was way too sweet. And I like straight black coffee. So I've made it that one time and I've never made it again. I feel like nobody really enjoyed it. Guess I didn't need to buy that immersion blender. If we're talking about ways to boost our energy levels, what about home workouts? I love the home workout situation. I mean, I love gym, but it's it's gotten so easy. I also feel like I feel better about doing like 20 minute or less workouts, which I would never do at the gym. I would feel embarrassed to do that. But at home, I'm like, yeah, it's got my 20 minutes and it's great. So yes. I think they're great. I think apartment workouts are different than people who get to work out from home in a house because in an apartment, you hear the people next to you, above you, like every floorboard creaks. Okay, so we'll probably still work out at home, but that doesn't have to make us bad neighbors. Next up, are we still gonna be staying home and cutting our own hair? I don't know. I think that's way too hard to nail at home. I think once salons get back to normal, people are gonna be running there to get their hair done. Yeah, just don't do it. No. It's a no from me. Sounds like that's one quarantine pastime that's getting the chop. Speaking of pruning, what does 2021 have in store for our houseplants, AKA our new besties? I think people have been able to pay more attention to their plants because they have to stare at them as their coworkers now. I bought a snake plant in COVID and we killed it, which is sad. And snake plants are like the easiest to cactus. I know. So just owning a house plant won't automatically give us a green thumb. Home haircuts are out and we can go back to regular coffee. Stick around. We've got one more look at the staying power of 2020 trends later in the show. So now we want to talk about how everyone has been keeping themselves entertained this year. The entertainment industry went through a big makeover to figure out how to keep their audiences at home connected, engaged, and paying for premium content. Let's start with the big screen. Movies! But as the pandemic shut down movie theaters, we started to see a lot of delayed premieres or stalled productions. The highly anticipated next James Bond film, No Time to Die, was supposed to be released back in April, and then got pushed to November, and then again to April 2021. So it wasn't shaken or stirred. Or as M puts it, Come on, Bond. Where the hell are you? To get some more insight on what went down as the curtains closed and whether we're still going to be figuring out how to use watch party apps in 2021, we grabbed some popcorn and sat down with an expert. I'm Rebecca Rubin, and I'm a film and media reporter with Variety, and I cover the box office, streaming services, and Hollywood studios. So raise your hand if you signed up for Disney Plus during the summer to watch a little production about immigrants who get the job done. I think the biggest shift that we've seen so far because of the pandemic is that Hollywood studios are moving some of their biggest theatrical releases to streaming platforms like HBO Max, Disney Plus. In some cases, they're even selling movies to Netflix. Hamilton wasn't supposed to hit theaters until October 2021, but its release was moved up a year and a half so it could drop on 4th of July weekend. Cool flex. You probably remember that tickets to see the Tony Award-winning musical on stage were pretty hard to come by. But now everyone who was in the Disney Plus streaming club could be in the room where it happened. 
So, at least in this one instance, Disney skipping theaters and releasing Hamilton right to streaming was fun for both us and probably good for Disney's bottom line. And the straight-to-streaming strategy helped some less hype movies, too. Like when the indie sci-fi rom-com Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti, reportedly broke a new opening weekend record for Hulu, and also went on to becoming one of the most highly acclaimed comedies of 2020. So is the big screen to the home screen model the new way forward? That's basically the question that every studio around Hollywood is trying to answer right now. Will people still go to the movies if they can watch a new release at home? A lot of people are questioning if we are going to be able to go back to the old ways of doing business because people have gotten used to watching movies at home for a year. And I think the one way that we might see it go back is if it ends up not being as profitable. And just looking at the financials of a movie like Wonder Woman 1984, for example, that movie cost the studio around $200 million just to produce. That doesn't include marketing fees on a global scale. So it is a huge, huge endeavor. And when they greenlight a movie like that, they're expecting it to make hundreds of millions of dollars in theaters. And right now, they don't even know if that's possible. While in some places, there are theaters that are open with reduced capacity, people just aren't showing up like they used to. According to The Hollywood Reporter, revenue from ticket sales in the U.S. this year hit a 40-year low. But Ruben says, whether you'll be checking out new movies from the comfort of your own couch in the future will come down to the kind of film we're talking about and what specific studios want to do. Disney and Warner Brothers both have streaming services through their parent company. And I think if a movie isn't expected to be an Avengers Endgame level movie, which is the highest grossing movie ever, they're contemplating, okay, are we going to get more subscribers if we put a new movie like Pixar's Soul on Disney Plus? And so in some instances, it's really coming down to a movie by movie basis. Do we think that if we do keep it, in theaters, people will still come eventually, or does it make more sense to just say, you know what, people want to see this now, let's put it on a streaming service and boost subscribers. Warner Brothers is more on the extreme side. Warner Brothers announced recently that every movie that they plan to release in 2021 is going to open on HBO Max, which is the streaming service owned by their parent company, Warner Media, and the movies are also going to open in any theaters that are still open on the same day, which is a huge shift to how movies are traditionally released. Usually there's a three-month window before you can see a movie at home. And so the studio executives at Warner Brothers are saying that this is going to be a temporary change. It's a one-year model in response to the pandemic. All 17 movies that they're planning on putting on HBO Max are going to be available at no extra charge because right now they're just focused on getting people to sign up for the streaming service. They have about 9 million subscribers compared to Disney Plus, who has over 80 million. According to Ruben, these changes might also impact what kind of movies get made because studios are really financially dependent on their biggest productions with blockbuster budgets. You would think that it would be easier for smaller scale movies to be filming during the pandemic because the smaller the production, the less people are on set. But the reality is that the costs are so high 
it's so expensive to be compliant with this new pandemic era of safety protocols, which is routine temperature checks and coronavirus swab testing, that really it's only the major tent poles and movies from the biggest Hollywood studios that can afford it. But as for whether or not the days of overpriced buttery popcorn and finding the perfect seat are over... I think the prospect of the vaccine coming earlier than a lot of people expected has injected some optimism. I think people are going to, if they like going to the movies, they're going to continue going. I don't think that's an art form that's going to go away anytime soon. But we, we might see a shift in the way that they're released. We might see them continue to come to streaming services sooner than they had before. And that will probably be the biggest change that has been accelerated by the pandemic. If there's one entertainment industry that's shown to be the most resilient in 2020, it's probably the one that helped provide the perfect digital escape. Video games. Whether or not you were able to get your hands on a Nintendo Switch this year, or are still trying to grab the new PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X, the momentum for the gaming industry is pretty clear. Video game sales and playtime peaked many times over the last year. As soon as lockdown really started, it became really clear that it was going to be a pretty big year for gaming in some way. That's Giovanni Colantonio. He's a video game reporter that's been keeping a close eye on how the industry has been handling the year. Which is kind of weird to say because obviously it's it's such a terrible year in a lot of ways, but you know, you could kind of see where gaming was going to fill in some of the gaps that were going to come up with people not having normal social interactions and routines and whatnot. And so the gaming industry, you saw a lot happened with it, and <laughs> just like a lot, a lot, a lot of really different things, whether it was people finding really unique ways to connect or really unique ways to have games fill certain spots in their lives. One game that really helped people do that? Animal Crossing New Horizons. You probably know the one, where your character starts off on a random island that you turn into your home and learn to live off the land, and also, get to hang out with your actual real-life friends. As social distance guidelines kept people physically apart, Animal Crossing kept people digitally together. Animal Crossing was a game that really helped people replace the routines that were missing in their lives. Like, that transcended what a game was. This game was categorically the definition of right place, right time. Animal Crossing obviously came out right at the end of March, when people were really going into lockdown. And so it had a bit of urgency to it because everyone was kind of cooped up inside. It was like, hey, we're bored. We need something to do. This game is really popular. It's also kind of this relaxing escape. And so it was obviously successful because of that. But one thing that I don't think that we realized at the time about Animal Crossing that's like clear on reflection is that is a game that was training everybody to be able to live digitally during the pandemic, right? Because at that time in March, Everyone was still like, what is going on? You know, we're, we're all adjusting to Zoom now. You know, we, we can't see our friends anymore. And so our social situations are changing. How do we do that? I went to birthday parties in Animal Crossing. I went to a wedding in Animal Crossing. The amount of things that people did with that game to fill those spaces was super important. And all of this meant some really good news for Nintendo. The Nintendo Switch is a handheld game console that came out three years ago. It's like the modern Game Boy. Before this year, some of the biggest games on Switch were Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, and Mario Kart. As of November, it's been the best-selling console in the US for 24 straight months. 
which also means it outsold both the newly released and highly anticipated Xbox and PlayStation consoles. The last Animal Crossing game, over the course of like six years or so, sold 13 million units. Animal Crossing New Horizons sold 26 million units in less than a year. It's about to become the Switch's most, like, its highest selling game. A lot of people have kind of used the term right place, right time for Nintendo this year, and that is extremely true, because if it had been any other year, if it had not been a pandemic, if it had just been kind of a normal gaming year, it could have been really bad for Nintendo. Another unexpected breakout success? Definitely not Cyberpunk 2077, but a little old game called Among Us. It's an online multiplayer game centered around you and your friends essentially completing a lot of different tasks to keep your spaceship running while one or several of your teammates are actually trying to kill you. This cultural phenomenon is an indie game created by just three developers. Its way of helping people feel connected became a big deal with influencers. But what really sealed the deal is when leading up to the election, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez played the game live on the streaming platform Twitch as part of an effort to get people out to vote. Over 400,000 joined the live stream, raising $200,000. But Among Us wasn't a 2020 release. You've seen so many interesting success stories this year in really surprising places. One of the biggest stories of the year was Among Us. Among Us was a game that came out in 2018. It, it was a tiny, tiny, tiny indie game made by a couple of people, uh, truly just a handful of people that nobody paid attention to in 2018. And this was the kind of game that like, it was good in 2018, just nobody knew about it. Even though Among Us was an unlikely success, Giovanni worries that most indie games, which rely on building up industry buzz at trade shows, could be in trouble. The thing that actually is the most kind of troubling thing that comes out of all of this is actually as it pertains to indie games, from my perspective. The way that indie games make their money and the way that they get notoriety and become known is they go and they do the work in person. They go to conventions like E3, which is the biggest video game convention, which got canceled this year, and they put their games on the show floor. And that gets word of mouth out about them. But at the same time, it also gets them in front of the eyes of investors and publishers who are actually going to give them money to release these games. Like with independent movies, it's indie games with small teams and small budgets that could be hit the hardest by the pandemic. Though if there is one industry that's gaining new followers and could probably thrive in a virtual business environment, it's probably video games. In general, games were really prepared for this moment in some way, because if you look at the last couple of years of how the industry has developed, it's been really clear that games have been moving towards this sort of like, hey, we're all going to have to be digital at some point, <laughs> you know, whether it's whether it's through being away from one another, uh, you know, long distances or or something like this. Games have been preparing for this really, really well. You know, multiplayer games over the last year have only gotten bigger and bigger. So all of those pieces kind of came together this year where it was like, hey, we know all of this is rough, and we know that a lot of industries like film and sports are going to have a really hard time figuring out how to deal with this. We've got this. Imagine it's 2021. You're working from home with your camera off, and you're wearing your fancy velvet sweatpants. And it's time for lunch. We asked our colleagues, are we still making our own sourdough? Maybe like end, middle end of 2021, everyone's going to be like, F this, I'm going to buy my own bread. Like, I'm, it's too much effort to stay home. To me, one of the biggest deterrents of making something like bread 
in normal times is the fact that you're at work all day and like you can't tend to it or like do the things you might need to do. Once people do start going back to work or life starts slowly getting back to normal, people are gonna be like, I don't really have time. The art of bread baking is here to stay. I think we've moved on from sourdough. It's like there'll be a different trendy bread that people will be making. So we won't throw away that instant yeast we bought back in March quite yet. But next year, are we making our bread in our city apartments or are suburbs still where it's at? People are like, I can get all this property. I think moving to the suburbs and moving other places while keeping their jobs. It's like you can move anywhere and still do your job for the most part. Um, and people just aren't going to want to live in expensive cities. I spent the first four to five months, more like actually like six months of the pandemic in the suburbs um, and coming back to a tiny apartment in New York City was really difficult. I think the pandemic has just like made people hardliners for like the way that they like to live. Like I think if you are like New York City or you are like now New York City or bust, I'm never leaving. I'm staying here forever. And I think the people that left were probably people that were always going to leave at some point. No matter where we decided to live, is 2020's big table space consuming trend here to stay? I love puzzles. I've only done one all quarantine, but I love puzzles. I feel like if you liked puzzles before quarantine, you'll keep doing them. And if you didn't do a puzzle in quarantine or before, you're probably never going to do one. Binge watching a TV series over puzzles. Um, I think they're great. I think in a small New York City apartment, they're actually quite tough because who has the counter space to put out a big puzzle? I don't. But cute, fun. Let's make them eco-friendly. I'm never leaving New York, but also I can't do anything in my New York apartment. (laughs) We weren't so sure about that answer, though. So we asked one of our co-founders, Carly, jigsaw puzzles, yay or nay? Yes, how many? What do you think is here to stay in 2021? Tell us on social. And for more recommendations on things that aren't going away, check out theskim.com slash picks. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next year, or just next Thursday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.